0: Welcome
2: to the New Books Network.
3: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I have the amazing distinction to talk to two of my best friends, Dr. Robert Green and Dr. Tyler Perry. Not that Perry, but this Perry. Uh, you, You know I had to start there, brothers. You know I had to start there. And they're on to discuss their edited volume, Invisible No More the African-American experience at the University of South Carolina.
2: Welcome to the show, friends. How are we doing? Doing well. Beautiful day. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I'm glad to be here once again.
3: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And so if you hear these gentlemen and you're like, hold on, I feel like I've heard from them before. Well, you have. Uh, They were on um, a couple of years ago, I believe, uh, on the cusp of the pandemic. So a little over, I guess now about three and a half years ago, uh, wild to think how quickly time uh moves <laughs> right um uh, and so they're on to discuss this new volume this new volume from the University of South Carolina press um and so let's get it started so um why did you both choose to co-edit invisible no more
0: so yeah, that's a great question uh it's one that I always think about when I look at the book uh eating to hear it now uh Tyler and not uh, we're both graduate students at the University of South Carolina We're involved with a series of programs designed to commemorate the the 50th anniversary of South Carolina's desegregation. Uh, We're both working with Val Littlefield in African-American studies at USC. And at the time, she said after a symposium about desegregation, she said, you know, it'd be great if we had a volume or some sort of tribute to this that was in book form. And so the idea stayed in the air for a few years. Then we both finished our degrees and moved on to senior track positions, and we began talking about that idea that Battlefield had, and that was really the genesis of this project. In addition to that, I think uh, Dr. Perry especially deserves a lot of credit for his work on Reconstruction at USC. That was another reason why this project, because as he made it clear, USC has the unique distinction of having not one but two desegregations, and we wanted to do more to commemorate both of those and also link them together across this wide cast of history. Tyler?
2: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that was a great answer. And it's interesting reflecting on the origin stories on a project, uh, you know, years later after it's published and um, everything that, that Robert said, and I would also add that, you know, you when you do an edited volume, there's, there's different ways to approach it um, on the one hand. You want to, you know, select uh, co-editors that you trust, people you think that get the work done, people who are as excited about the project as you are. And Robert and I would run into each other at conferences um, ever so often. After both of us had left the PhD program, um, we would stay in contact. And this project, this symposium we were part of, was always on our mind. It was just such an interesting moment to consider that the University of South Carolina. The flagship university and the seedbed of the Confederacy have this unique history of, of an African-American experience on the campus from the early 1800s to the present. And we just both mutually felt that this story had to be told and that uh, the symposium was wonderful, but unless you attended the panels, you, you didn't know about it. And so we wanted to find a way to ensure that this history was going to get into the hands of people who needed it the most. And so one thing we decided to do is instead of do an open call for papers, we had fellow panelists and fellow graduate students and people that were working on it with us throughout the entirety of that time. And so we just started reaching out to people that were a part of that process. And we're talking five to six years ago. So some of these, some of these individuals hadn't thought about that research since they had presented it, but we were fortunate in that the vast majority of people we invited said yes, and then some people even came out of nowhere, um, one being Evan Kutzler, who happened to be doing work on Simon Peter Smith, which became a fantastic chapter about the life of a man enslaved at the University of South Carolina and what he did during Reconstruction and during Jim Crow. So, I mean, the the motivations were essentially that we just really wanted to make sure that the history was available for people going forward, and we chose the University of South Carolina Press because, obviously, it's within the locality that we were we were looking to to educate with this history, but also they handled it with such great care. Um, we could have had uh, we could have requested a better process in that regard. So, um, you know, reflecting on it now, it's I remember a lot of emails, a lot of work, a lot of frustrations, but it, it was all worth it to see it, it produced.
3: You mentioned frustrations great way to pivot to the next question. As we know, co-editing volumes can be an incredibly tough experience. Um, And so I'm going to start with uh, going back to you, Tyler. What presented y'all the biggest challenge in bringing the volume to
0: print?
2: Wow, this is a great question. And so I would say that um, I will put this on myself in that editors can psych themselves out as to whether or not they think this is feasible anymore. And so this was the first time I'd ever edited a volume. Like I had served as an editor before um, through Black Perspectives and other functions. But um, the idea of coordinating and making sure timetables were working and that we were getting images, permissions and everything, that burden starts to kind of fall upon one's shoulders. Uh, And there were certain moments where I was wondering if, if, I was going to be able to fulfill my requirement. I remember I was looking at a draft of the chapter that I eventually contributed, and it was 12 pages, and it was due relatively soon. I started I started, you know, having panic attacks and things like this as to whether or not, because I was also um, on the tenure clock at UNLV during this process too. So I think frustrations is maybe not the best word in that it's more on my end as to whether or not i felt like maybe i had bit off more than i could chew but the fortunate reality for me is that robert i mean i don't know what it was like on his end but he always presents himself as very calm when we talk so he was actually really good <laughs> to kind of wow <laughs> I, I trusted that he was he was also filling his end and i think really what happens is it's frustrations with deadlines, but that's always out of people's control. You just kind of trust that people are working and they'll get it to you when they can. And you want to make sure that they don't feel rushed because you you just, at the end of the day, you want the best product that they give you. And I think there are a few deadlines we missed, probably might remember better than I do, but um, eventually we got exactly what we wanted. And, you know, reading the volume and rereading it now, it's, you know, it, it all worked out exactly the way I'd hoped for.
0: Robert? Well, you know, it's interesting that Tyler should mention that because I remember when we worked on the volume, I had to look back at my chapter and like Tyler had to not quite start from scratch, but I had to go back to something I hadn't looked at in years. And it was a jarring experience because initially I thought, well, this was originally a symposium paper. Let me think about where I can go with this. But as I began working on it and resumed work on it, I really enjoyed the process. Um, I will say that in terms of challenges, we we were lucky enough to work with contributors who were able to get us things relatively quick, you know, on time. Because again, most of not all of them working on this material before and just needed a place to publish it. But I will also say for both Tyler and myself, the big elephant in the room was the COVID-19 pandemic because we had secured uh, contributions from everyone. We knew that they'd be getting us chapters when the pandemic hit. And the biggest issue many contributors ran into was quite simply, they couldn't go anywhere for research. They couldn't go to archives. They couldn't access the kinds of things they hoped to be able to access during this process. Uh, We were fortunate, uh, and Holly Genevieve's chapter, in particular, was really benefited by this, that the Daily Gamecocks archives, the USC student newspapers archives, are actually online, and they're fully searchable. And that was a great help for her chapter. Uh, In addition to that, we ran to things such as paper shortages. This is something that was talked about back in 2020 and 2021, where a lot of publishing companies had a hard time printing books because paper was running low. Which was something that we hadn't anticipated happening when we first began this process. Uh, but with that said, you know, like Tyler, I had experience editing from both Black perspectives and the society of historians, but I think a co-edit volume is a bit different because you're marshalling together different voices, different viewpoints, and you're trying to make it into a coherent narrative. And for us, we were fortunate enough to where the chapters actually flowed pretty well together. But I also know that, like Tyler, like myself, all the contributors working on a variety of things all at once. It's a juggling act. If you're co editing a volume for one press, you're working on a book for another press, and working on a book chapter for a different press, and working on your own journal article and so forth. We all had those challenges and we also all had COVID-19 to deal with. But thankfully we had a great team that was able to steer us through it, both with our contributors and with USC Press. They were wonderful to work with. Uh, they were they were great to work with. Aaron Foley was a godsend in many ways for this project. So again, we had some challenges, but we were able to weather all of them. And uh, yeah, I was actually I'm glad that you
3: uh cited uh Aaron's name there because I was gonna say, uh is anyone from uh, USC Press, in particular, that you wanted to shout out. Uh, but as y'all are very known to do, you know, y'all are you know real close friends of mine, so you're already in my brain there. Uh, so so it worked out there. And so um, you you spoke about the process of, of bringing folks together, you know, via the symposium and and bringing even some newer voices in. And so um, both of y'all are graduates of USC's uh, PhD program, um, and in you know many great people there. Uh, Donaldson Holton and, and, and little the little fields uh and, and the list goes on and so what does it mean uh to y'all to bring the volume into the world specifically because it's such um you know I'm contributing to to some volumes here and as I'm finishing up graduate school um but they're you know away right they're not you know within the home base so so what does it feel for y'all as usc grads working with mostly you i think all usc grads as well like what does that mean
0: for y'all as a as a uh, community well i can tell you right off the bat that it meant a great deal to both of us to get this stuff for that very reason um i think that in the historical profession we tend to downplay the importance of edited volumes you kind of see them as oh you know these, these things that people do to kind of get the work out there and move on but they can be very valuable tools in terms of talking about where a field is, where it's headed. In our case, though, it was unique because, and I still live in Columbia, South Carolina now, so I've been able to see this in action, people in the community still care about this book several years later. Um, It was a story that wasn't just important to historians and African-American studies scholars, it was important to Black folk in the community as well because they felt that, for many years, these stories had not been told the way they should have been told. Um, for example, I was just at an event two weekends ago. It's called Jubilee. It's an annual African American festival here. In Columbia has been held over 40 years from now. And I was uh, going up to Sword Columbia's tent at the event, and they had some copies of our book out there. And someone, I was talking to the folks at the table, and it just happened to mention casually. It's like, yeah, I'm one of the co with of that book. And they were all stunned. They were like, we, we did recognize you. I thought you looked familiar. And I even signed a copy of the book for somebody else who was there because they felt so strongly about learning the story. So I think with this book, it really helped us to say that USC is an important place, not just to us personally, but to us as, as the stories of the Black experience in South Carolina across the country. And we want other folks outside of the South to know that story. I can tell you time and again, I've encountered many historians who are experts in African American history, who've always expressed astonishment about the stories we tell in the book, especially about USC's birth desegregation, the attempts to segregate the 20th century, and how not only as a university, but as a state, South Carolina still has a lot to say about the Black experience.
2: All of that. That, That's a great answer. and I think one of the words that comes to mind is legacy. Um, What... What does an edited volume like this leave for future generations of students, uh, both Black and white students or students of various identities approaching on the campus? And and I can say that, you know, I I first entered University of South Carolina in 2009, fall of 2009, and um, until Val Littlefield, uh, you know, sent me the email very kindly asking me to serve on the graduate committee for, you know, the symposium, of the anniversary, I had very little understanding of the history of African Americans on the campus outside of the desegregation in 1963. That was what most people knew at the time. There weren't many statues, if any. Uh, there weren't many monuments. Most of the placards you would see were from the 20, 1920s, um, kind of like this old kind of Jim Crow narrative where they were talking about, like, battles that may have happened near the, the university. And so, the presence of a black past at the University of South Carolina was, you know, structurally in many ways kind of erased. Uh, there was there was not a lot discussed outside of the initial moment of desegregation. And then there wasn't even very much in the narrative about what happened after that. So there's like these freeze-frame moments where we know there were enslaved people on the campus. We know that there was a desegregation movement in 1963, and then that's the totality of it. And so as a person attending the University of South Carolina, pursuing a degree in history of the African diaspora and then to be invited to learn about something that for me was relatively brand new, the reconstruction experience at the University of South Carolina, knowing that, you know, at this point, 150 years ago, you no, know, black men entered the campus and the black women were also learning on the campus in a, in a different function to the normal school. I was just, I felt like this story uh, needed to be told and it needed to be honored and it needed to be known by by those who were going to enter the campus in subsequent generations. And so for me, it was deeply meaningful that we could not only use the university's own press, but also that all of the contributors had some investment in the history as well, all of them having some affiliation with the university. And it's not that that was deliberate, it's just that it does kind of showcase a love for the telling of the history of people who were maybe historically voiceless within the broader narratives, and then using the biographies of these historical figures to tell that particular story, because one one thing I will say that we can maybe talk about a little bit later is a running theme throughout the edited volume is the use of biography. You're introduced to a lot of different people and their contributions and their, their legacies and and what they contributed to to changing the society um, for the better into the 21st century.
3: And that's actually a really good point because it makes me think um, one of the sessions I went to at uh, ASALA, the Association for the Study of African American Life History, for those who don't know, um, it, I went to a Black women's biography panel and it, and it made me really think about how biographies, you know, the big biographies, you know, on, on a singular figure, or uh, edited volume like yours, which um, is not exclusively biographical in that sense, but there's so many biographies of people that um, folks may not know have effectively shaped uh, USC, the real USC, not that other one in, in SoCal. Uh, I know, I know, I know uh, we have some folks from out west uh, on the call here,
2: but. No no disagreement for me. No disagreement for
3: me in
2: the East. That's the real one.
3: There we go. There we go. Um, It just makes me really think about um, the the, the importance of biography in uh, delivering information to the public because oftentimes biographical information is the first leg of the journey of trying to get people to understand history. Because if you go on to um, public memorial sites, you know, with your uh, you know, two whatever 200, 500 words, that's effectively a a a short biography. But for many Black people, especially in the time frames in which your story comes, that's all you really have enough is to be able to tell what amounts to be a uh, public, uh, memorial site. Um, a word count, um, effectively. So, so I'm glad that you actually touched on that, and. Uh, because we still have time for a few other questions. I I have another question for you that wasn't on my initial list. Um, your work is also a part. So, so I interviewed, uh, Leslie Harris, uh, years ago, um, right actually around the time I interviewed y'all the first time together, um, about her slavery in the university, uh, book that she co-edited. Um, and it makes me think as well about the, the, the work that's being done in critical university studies and. And slavery and and, and uh, unity in college campus, kind of like that historiography. So, can you also talk to us a bit more, especially because uh, we have someone from the Lemon Project, uh, uh, Dr. Jody Lynn Allen from William and Mary, uh, who who wrote about the book as a blurb. This thought provoking work is a must read for higher education professionals in the U.S. and abroad for grappling with their uh, complex histories and who wish to tell these stories end quote. So it makes me think as well her connected with uh, the limit project at way very. So can you tell us how the volume also uh, uh contributes to this budding uh, historiography um that that's been going on really, you know we I, I think I think folks outside the uh, uh, president Simmons over at brown and and other folks, I know Leslie Harris and others. so talk, let's talk about where. Uh, invisible no more fits and contributes to this budding historiography. Um and we'll go with Tyler first.
2: Yeah, so we're we're greatly indebted to all of the work that came before and looking forward to everything that that comes after as well. Um and you know in our introduction we are positioning the book the volume more broadly within this larger historiography of what you might yeah, what you've called critical university studies and you're seeing Many more symposiums about that particular topic. I was fortunate enough to attend one um, in Boston about a year or two ago, and just the the diversity of different perspectives and experiences of basically every university in the United States. One well, we could say, and you know, universities out west have different experiences than those in the South, and the North, et cetera, but. They are all united within this commonality of the rise of the neoliberal institution, um, but also historical patterns of exclusion of different identity groups. Um, One of the things that Robert and I noticed as to another impulse as to why this volume needed to exist is that, comparatively speaking, the University of South Carolina shares a number of commonalities with other Southern universities, um, and, you know, having roots um, within the system of slavery and exploitation, um, having you know historical segregation that occurred, the, the establishment of HBCUs throughout throughout the U.S. South, predominantly. But there were just different facets of the of the story or the narrative that were unique to the University of South Carolina. One being the reconstruction era um as well as even the hiring of a black faculty member in the 1870s uh, and so we found that as many similarities as university of south carolina shares within this broader historiography there's a uniqueness that has a lot to do with the state of south carolina itself the city of charleston south carolina and you know the the different individuals that produced um as as well as kind of this motivation, particularly that the 1869 Board of Trustees of the university had to where they wanted, they didn't want to make the University of South Carolina a black only campus, but they did see a future where the majority of the students could be black and it could be excellent. And I think that is the story that Robert and I really wanted to produce showing how a university, that begins in the early 1800s, I think 1801, is the actual date that most people use. Enslaved people on campus, likely building the buildings, serving students, um, oppressed, marginalized people, then going into the reconstruction era seeing just a, literally a radical transformation and then seeing how that ends. But how then do African-Americans in South Carolina react to those circumstances. And that's where we get into uh, Robert's expertise about the desegregation uh, project and then how that's remembered and commemorated in in later decades. And so we really wanted to make sure, and we thought we could do this with an edited volume. It would have been hard for a single person to write this. Uh, The edited volume provides a way for people of different areas and expertise to all formulate a chronological narrative of the African-American experience at the University of South Carolina. so, And we felt that this institution was one of the few that could produce something along those lines to so where there was not like a broken point. There was this kind of this long uh, connected narrative from 1801 to 2020.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: Robert? Yeah, I think that's an excellent answer from Tyler. I would just simply add that. Uh, We were certainly aware, in fact, we were adding to this historiography of slavery on uh, university campuses, a historiography that is thankfully still growing, uh, even right now. Um, But we're also aware that we were adding to the historiography of school desegregation across the South, and thinking about how in the last 20 years, you've seen a variety of monographs on different schools, from the big ones like UVA or UGA to even schools like Georgia State, for example, because we I think with that history, we tend to leave out smaller institutions or non-state universities and just focus on the big schools, but every school was having that kind of desegregation process. As a personal example, I'm a... My undergrad and master's from George Southern University, they desegregate in 1965, not too long after UGA does, and that story is kind of one of the ones that flies on the radar. But also, I we felt it was important that USC's story being told because of its unique geographic proximity to HBCUs in the area. So, for example, in my chapter, I talk a lot about the relationship between USC and Black residents in Columbia, because they're the ones who are helping to lead the way on trying to desegregate the campus, including Allen students from Allen University in the late 1950s. Um, in subsequent chapters, Ramon Jackson's most notably, he gets into talking about how, and this was important for us the for volume, how just because you desegregate a school doesn't mean black students are automatically welcomed there, even 3, 5, 10, 20 years after the fact. So Ramon's chapter and Holly's chapter both get into, well, what did black students do once they arrived there? How do they create a culture for themselves? And in, in Ramon's chapter, I remember reading his chapter when we first got it and laughing at this section where he talks about, as a black student, where did you get a haircut? These are the kinds of things that folks don't think about with segregation, and for those students, they had to make uh, friendships and alliances with black students at Allen & Benedict, schools that are in Columbia and not far from USC. Uh, likewise, South Carolina State, which is the neighboring campus to my university, Claflin University, they were the home to a law school for about 20 years from approximately uh, 1947 until 1966. And that law school produced the black lawyers who would eventually destroy segregation in South Carolina, ironically bringing in the need for SC State's law school program. And so there were all these stories that we saw USC being involved in, but they were part of this larger web of the black experience, both in ways that folks were aware of, but also in ways that are not quite as clear or also as commonplace in other Southern states as they are in South Carolina
3: yeah that question of where are you gonna get your hair cut that's uh th- th- that that's a very important one <laughs> so so that that's a that's a really good uh key and insight on that on that essay. but it's a very important question that even now like in uh especially in schools where the black population uh whether you know the institution has a small black population and the outlining community also has a small uh, uh black population of folks. Uh, that the folks traditionally have issues um, with getting haircuts. And so, um, and, and actually that goes to uh, an important segue to the next question about things that you might not expect um, in, in the volume two. So um, obviously y'all both went to USC, but you don't know everything about your institution. It, it's impossible. Um, and so what information surprised you the most from your co-authors' uh, contributions to the volume?
0: And so Robert, we'll go back to you. Well, first off, I have to shout out uh the chapter by Kat and Lydia, chapter 10, about commemoration at USC. And that chapter was jarring. I, I won't speak for people myself. It was jarring for me to read because it involved people I actually knew. Um, that chapter involved very recent events on USC's campus, and it really showed the nuts and bolts of how do you get a statue put up on campus? How do you get buildings named or renamed after individuals on campus? Uh, but in addition to that, I, I think I was surprised by, as I mentioned before, some of the information about USC campus life in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I, I really want to stress to folks that while there's a lot of great work being done on both slavery studies and segregation studies at universities, there's still much to be done on what life looks like after. College. Meaning it is not enough for us to tell the stories of people just getting a campus or coming onto a campus there are also some stories waiting to be told about how you build cultural institutions on the campus. So again, going back to the question of how black students felt at USC, this is a question that still lingers on the campus even today. I I think when we talk about the volume itself, we cannot divorce it from the fact that the volume was also uh, promulgated, written, after the Black Lives Matter protests on various college campuses in the 2010s. And that includes USC, where black students made certain demands on the administration to do more things to commemorate black life on campus. So again, all these things are, are really tied together, but in terms of what I was surprised by, I think that the diversity of life on campus in USC in the 70s and 80s, and also again, going back to the chapters on Reconstruction, both by Tyler and also by, by Christian Anderson and Jason Darby, they did a lot to talk about folks like Richard T. Greeter, other black students and faculty on campus, and it really gave a sense of how vibrant life was at USC during those four short years. So those are some of the things that really genuinely surprised me. Tyler?
2: Yeah. That, that's a great, a great way to kind of contextualize how I was thinking about that question, because for and I'll say for those who read the volume. I know that not everybody has time to do this, but I do encourage people to check out the footnotes to see where this information is coming from, because one of the things I'm always astounded by, and I've been a historian for a little while at this point, is how creative historians and and scholars who do history are with the sources that they have. So from the very beginning, when when you read Graham Duncan's chapter, he's trying to reconstruct the lived experiences of enslaved people on campus, whose lives are sometimes are literally snippets of information in the board of trustees minutes, and so he he is telling he is constructing a narrative about what life was like as an enslaved person from throughout the the 18, early 1800s, and he he does it so well to where you are kind of just engrossed within this narrative because he personalized the experiences of people who were not able to write anything about themselves. And so it wasn't that it surprised me that he could do this, but one of the interesting things about that chapter is he's so busy with what he does in the archives, because he's he's a professional archivist, he handles a lot in the South Carolina Library, is he wasn't sure if he had time to actually produce the the full chapter. It was based upon, a I believe, a senior's a thesis that he wrote many years ago. And so we were really fortunate to be able to to get that chapter from because we felt that he was he was the person that that could do it, and the other aspect of this or other components is is similar in that Evan Kutzler's chapter, kind of just some background information as to how these things come together. He wasn't originally part of the symposium that we had uh, to commemorate 1963 and 1873, but um, you know. And I think I told you this before, but we we often use Twitter to promote things or X, what well, was Twitter at the time. And um, he he saw something I had said about the volume that Robert and I were producing, and he DMs me and he says, are you still looking for chapters? And I think by this point, we were about ready to submit the proposal and kind of go forth with what we had. So it came right on time and I said, well, sure, do you know anybody? Because I didn't know he was working on anything. Apparently, what was known of Simon Peter Smith came from an edited volume where there's like a snippet of a letter he wrote about being enslaved at the University of South Carolina. Now, he went on to have kind of this interesting career, but no one really knew that. They just knew he existed in this, you know, freeze frame um, paragraph that was published by um, a edited volume at, at some point in the past. And he got interested. He's like, "I wonder who this person is. I wonder if I can find his papers. Did he write anything else?" So, on his own, privately, he he went on this journey and acquired uh, uh, all known papers of Simon Peter Smith, and uh, but didn't know what to do with. Them. He actually later would tell us that he almost gave the papers away because he didn't know if he had the time to produce anything or to invest in you know, the project until he saw our volume. So these things come together in really unique ways, and when you when a person reads that chapter, it is so fascinating to see how a person's life can exist in like 80 to 100 letters that they wrote, and the way that a scholar um, is tasked to try to reconstruct what that means, how they thought about different things, where they were, what they thought about their surroundings, why they moved to this place. And so I was just reminded... One thing I really enjoyed about editing the collection is I was just reminded as to how creative and brilliant uh, historians and people who do historical work are with the sources that they have.
3: Amen to that. Creativity is key. Um, and the uh, Lord's work, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, worked in this way to bring uh, the 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 volume together. And shout out to Twitter slash X, for always being a catalyst for many of these things. Even our connections as well. Uh, and, and, and so, um, as well, um, uh, Robert, as
0: well. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, certainly places like Twitter, X, whatever we're going to call it tomorrow, are, are really valuable in these kinds of historical contributions and scholarship programs and ideas. Uh, I will also say it has been valuable in promoting the book itself and in getting folks to be invested in the book project and to really continue reading it. Again, I have to confess, I have been surprised by the fact that people are still talking about the book in 2023. I know that as scholars, we tend to think that our work has a shelf life of approximately two seconds, that as soon as it's published and produced, that's it, you can involved up your time. You might it a little bit, but that's about it. But I wanted to also address something that, Tyler mentioned a moment ago historiography that you, Adam, also brought up. One of the other reasons the book's been so valuable, I know Christian Anderson, historian of education at USC, has mentioned this a lot. Previous books written about USC's history have tended to either ignore or severely downplay the Black presence at the University of South Carolina. And our biggest hope with this volume is that it'll get other uh, scholars, other graduate students, to take a second look at that history. Because as we both said in the introduction, there is a lot of work still left to be done about black life at USC. And we really want to encourage folks to dig deeper into that work because we're looking forward to reading it too.
3: Yeah. And and that, you know, goes to why, um, I, I think about, you know, the convos I've had with folks in different graduate programs and how, um, especially if you're, if you don't have access to big pools of money and external grants and, and fellowships to go to these um, institutions to uh, garner to, to to gather information. Oftentimes, it's those uh, co- uh, college campuses, especially if you're in the capital of a state like uh, Columbia and uh, USC is, where you ha- you have a local project because it you can go to and fro pretty pretty easy um, because it's local. Um, so so to those graduate students, uh, to to those undergrads and masters students who are looking for a PhD program or for PhD uh, topics you know dissertation topics USC check them out hit up Holton hit up Donaldson hit up the list goes on they got people there for you to work with um and also shout out to Kevin Dawson too I know Kevin Dawson uh was was uh was Tyler's uh, uh mentor as well and so uh somebody who is uh for me one of my favorite interviews uh and to be able to meet him, uh, uh, once again, right before the pandemic, 2019, when he won, I think it was the Arian Tubman Book Prize, uh, you know, so, some very, very good people at USC. Um, and so, um, as we pivot towards the end, I have a question because I couldn't get out of here, uh, because, you know, reconstruction plays such a pivotal role in this book to think about, you know, the, the, the war not only, uh, on and of reconstruction, but to think about how it connects to our current day. Right, right before we got on, I was actually listening to uh, Howard's International Black Writers Festival, um, and it was Tanasi Coates and Mickey Kendall, um, Nicole Hannah Jones, Eber Rex Candy. Yeah, very interesting figures, shall we say, in the news. We're we'll asleep there. Um, so uh, I'll just leave it there. I'll just leave it there. Uh, uh, just read the news, Boston Globe, the whole thing. But anyway um in terms of book banning culture wars all those different things um so so i couldn't get out of here without also getting some of your ruminations about how the volume can also help us to better understand the current state of education in south carolina and in throughout the entire nation or book banning and other things um are very much happening so robert green ii how
0: about you take that well, I, I think this is an especially interesting question to think about because of the place where I curling work at Clafly University, which was founded in 1869, which is around the same time you have an actual biracial government in South Carolina first come to power, right? Which is a major part of our USC edited volume. I think in terms of, of how the book responds to some of these questions, both in the past and the present, there is... I believe a, a growing concern amongst many Americans about whether or not the project of diversity and multiculturalism is being brought to an end. If it's being actively dismantled, I think the answer is yes. You're looking at attacks on diversity, equity, inclusion programs and all across the country. At the same time, working in an HBCU, I often encounter students who will tell me just forthrightly that the reason they are there is because they've gone to K-12 schools that were majority white, and they always felt alienated. They always felt alone. And this is the first time they've actually felt fully accepted as who they are. The very fact that students could say that that kind of thing in 2023, could have said it, say, in 1973, could have said it much earlier than that, I think speaks volumes about how far we have left to go. At the same time, higher education plays an important role. That's why it's a battleground for all these different debates right now the battle to control America's mind is really a battle to control America itself. And so I think our volume speaks to how when a place like the USC tries to become a multicultural institution, the backlash it has received time and again for that, it shows us how these kinds of forces are still at play even in the early 21st century. And so in other words, reconstruction you could argue has never fully ended. It just changes form, changes purpose, and we're seeing this even in our epic collection.
2: Tyler? Yeah, that that's great, and this is a great question. And I, as noted before, you know, when I approached the University of South Carolina's campus so I'm um, pursuing graduate school, there were no discernible markers about the Reconstruction Era that I could detect. And um, it wasn't talked about uh, in any significant capacity uh, up until the symposium that we were part of. Uh, but even then, uh, you know, unless you attended those, those uh, festivities or activities you, you still didn't know that you know the campus that you were that you were walking upon the horseshoe area in particular was was once the most compelling experiments you could say in building a multiracial institution in the 1870s um something that was lambasted by the white press in particular for it being doomed to fail and it became very clear to me uh when I was studying the materials about Reconstruction at the University of South Carolina and drawing parallels to present-day circumstances, is that the last thing that Jim Crow historians ever wanted anyone to know was that, as far as we can tell, the University of South Carolina during the Reconstruction era was a success, that it was actually working, and that if not for the interventions of a Jim Crow government it probably would have continued unabated in its progress to where black and white men were sharing space within a classroom white men were being lectured by Richard T. Greener who was a black man and then vice versa with you know white professors teaching black and white students and also white professors defending their black students publicly but this is another thing that is sometimes left out of the narrative is that you know, it's, it's hard to discern how committed every single white professor was to the Reconstruction project, but we do we do find that many of them believed in this particular project and experiment, and that's why they were at the institution in the 1870s. So what you find occurs is that a number of lies and propaganda is elicited during the Jim Crow era through the historians by saying that it was a failure, that there was gonna be violence, that there was mismanagement of funds, and that reconstruction just crumbles on its own because white and black people could, could never live harmoniously or never pursue an education together. Um, but once you actually peel back the layers and look at the documents, you look at what a person like Henry E. Hain did when he was admitted to the medical school on October 7th, 1873, the 150th anniversary coming up very soon. Um, what he did, and then just the level of black men applying to the university, also believing in the reconstruction project, It's just very clear to me that what we're seeing with the suppression of books, the suppression of ideas, um, there is a, you know, a remix or a repeat of what occurred in the 1870s, and that is largely because the vast majority of Americans still don't know the intricate details of the Reconstruction era to be able to detect how history is in many ways repeating itself, um, though just using different tools and tactics. But yes, I mean, the Jim Crow historians writing 40 years after the fact, they were not going to talk about any of the positives. And in the 1870s, the students who attended the University of South Carolina knew this was going to happen. So they actually wrote public letters telling everybody how well things were actually working. Uh, A person like T. McCant Stewart, for instance, remained friends with a white student named Edward Cape, Edgar Capeless, and they actually would do things together, you know, decades after the university had closed. And so there were living, breathing people who could refute the Jim Crow histories in real time. It's just that because of the circumstances of the way information was suppressed, a number of people in the United States and in South Carolina had just assumed that Reconstruction was was not worth talking about because it was short-lived and they were told it failed. But now that we've you know gone in and actually uncovered the history, we find that that narrative was invented. And so within this particular volume, that's kind of a, a long-winded way of saying, is that this volume also provides a testament and a legacy for people to use in real time when they're perceiving that similar things are happening in our era.
3: Amen to that. Amen to that. And then also, as we finish up here, I also want to say, I would love to see one day, um, the university of South Carolina endow, um, a, a Richard T greener, like endowed professorship of history of race and, you know, history in some kind of way. Because I think, I, I think of, of all kind of people that, I think deserves that kind of I think you could pick anybody within the book but I think especially his example um presents something that that you know folks in power at the at USC all the you know folks at at Harvard as well uh with, with those deep pockets uh definitely uh you know ma- make it happen um and uh and yeah'm I'm, I'm really open for that and so so everybody it's been a wonderful episode of new books in African American studies we've had the distinct opportunity to chat with Dr. Robert Green II, Uh, he is a graduate of this amazing University of South Carolina department and is an assistant professor of history at Claflin University and the new president of the African-American Intellectual History Society. Don't breathe that hard, brother. It's an amazing responsibility. We're on Zoom, I can see you. Uh, uh, And so we're gonna celebrate that, brother. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big thanks. Big thanks. We also have Dr. Tyler uh, D. Perry, this Perry, not that Perry, uh, who is now an associate professor of African-American and African diaspora studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, also known as UNLV. And they've been on to discuss their amazing book, which has caused Dr. Keisha Blaine to remark this groundbreaking and insightful volume is filled with rich and dynamic stories of how black people shaped the University of South Carolina, it massively illuminates the interconnection of race and education in the American South. And Dr. Blaine has been talking in that blurb about Invisible No More, the African-American experience of the University of South Carolina. Y'all, thank you so much for uh, chopping up with me in episode 111 of my record on new books in African-American studies. Looking forward to many more. Until next time, y'all, over and out.